Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of MedTech POV, the podcast brought to you by AdvaMed, the world's largest trade association for medical technology companies. I'm your host, Scott Whitaker, President and CEO of AdvaMed. And today, we're pleased to have with us Carrie Vance, President and CEO of Titan Medical, a medtech company focused on enhancing robotic-assisted surgeries through its Enos system, a truly remarkable technology. Prior to his appointment as President and CEO this past summer, Vance served on Titan's board, and before that, he served as President and CEO of XCAF, another robotics medtech company. He has spent his entire career in the healthcare field, So I look forward to getting into his views on leadership, the future of medtech, and the challenges and opportunities Titan Medical and others in our industry face. All right, Kerry, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Good to be with you, Scott. Thanks. You know, I always like to start these off by helping the audience learn a little bit more about the person behind the big title of CEO. So let's start there with you as well, Kerry. Give us a a sense of where you're from, how you grew up, and how you got into medtech, maybe all together there. Sure. I'm a Midwestern guy. I was born in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, moved to Green Bay, and was raised in Menominee Falls, Wisconsin, which is a suburb of Milwaukee. Typical Midwestern roots and have an older brother and a younger brother. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, but also worked part-time at the school, which I think married up with our schedule, but also she was able to keep an eye on us a bit, which was interesting. My dad was a history teacher and a part-timer assistant baseball and football coach at the high school and, and the head basketball coach for the varsity team at the high school. He did that for about six or seven years, and then he was offered a position at the company that he worked at in the summers. And from there, he transitioned from teaching and coaching to to business. And, you know, for him, I think you can take the man out of coaching, but you can't take the, the coach out of the man. So that's really how he led and how he set that example for me as a leader, as a coach leader, and as a teacher throughout my career as well. So it was a great environment to grow up in had plenty of opportunities to succeed and fail and and to be tested and in all areas was heavily involved in sports and and school and and community and and then I I went to Marquette University in Milwaukee and then later went back for my MBA there. MedTech is interesting because I started off at Marquette in pre-med and I really was interested in the space and thought I wanted to be a doctor. And the job that I had in the four years that I was in college was for the athletic department. I worked in the training room and supported more than half of my education by doing that. So I was taping ankles and got the chance to sit on the bench for the basketball games. And it was a great college job to have, but also really kept me close to the point of care of athletes. I continued to have that interest, and yet I shifted to a business degree in economics for my undergrad. But then when I went into a sales position at GE Healthcare, and my eyes were open to the world of medtech, maybe in some of the most complex medtech that there is, and I was always interested in how care was provided for patients. I knew that there were physicians that cared. I knew that there were physicians that were really intelligent and knowledgeable, but ultimately the tools that they had to use were always of real interest to me 
and I wanted to be a part of that. Yeah. Carrie, I can't go on with the podcast without backing up to sports for a few minutes. If your dad was a coach and you played sports, you must have played for your dad for a while. Is that right? When he left coaching, not only can you not take the coach out of the man, so he coached his subordinates at the company that way, but he also ended up channeling all of that to me and my brothers. So we got plenty of his coaching throughout the years. Did you play for him in youth sports or, or did you ever get that opportunity or have that challenge, maybe I should say? You know, he's amazing because you would think that somebody who was so involved and who knew so much and was so passionate about it, somehow he found a way to coach us. And then once we got out of that realm and into the high school sports, he was there, went to every game, was extremely interested, but I never heard a thing about, you should do this differently, you should do that differently from a negative perspective. He found a way, what that is to me, it was because he was unselfish. I think inside the tendency is to do that. And yet he held that back because he knew that was the right thing to do. I coached a little bit before I transitioned into my professional career just for a couple of years at the high school level and uh, realized that wasn't where I was going to be the most successful. But I enjoyed it a lot. And then I ended up coaching all my kids up until about the eighth grade and in almost every sport, but primarily in basketball. Credit to your dad, because that's the hardest thing to do. If you know the sport, right, is to just let your kids play and be a fan. And if he was able to do that, that's a real credit to him. I think it was hard for him to leave coaching, too, because he loved to do it. And and yet, if you take all the hours and you figure out how much you make per hour doing that, it it was not a difficult choice for his family to make the move to business. But I know he missed it. So your experience on the bench, to some degree, kind of drew you to healthcare. it sounds like. Is that is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a combination. I mean, everybody has family members that need interventional care. When you're a part of that process, you get exposed to it. And there's a part of you that wants to make a difference. I also think being part of that standard of care for athletes was really helpful to me to understand where technology was lacking and, and where it was effective. Yeah. Talk about your journey to where you are now through the medtech field and tell the audience a little bit more about Titan and the work you're doing today. Sure. If you look at where technology has been and where it's going, it's important to address current standard of care as well as look to the future. If you look at in the robotic space, for example, 10, 20 years from now, it's going to look very different. Right now, the movement is to miniaturization, visualization, articulation of instruments, AI, and incorporating all of that. And so when you're in the space, when you're trying to change the paradigm, you need to address not only what currently is needed in the market, but what's down the road, especially because it takes a good amount of time to get through the regulatory pathway. And being a part of the future is exciting, but the realities of business require you to execute in the present. And so you need to be able to do both of those things. Yeah. Is raising capital maybe the most challenging thing for you on an annual basis? That's sort of the first question. And connected to that, how challenging has the last two years been, given the challenges of raising capital in a normal time? So it's always the most difficult thing, at least for me, because what I want to be able to focus on is, is execution. And in order to do that, though, you need time and you need resources. You spend a lot of your time thinking about how you get that support. In companies I've been in in the past, the larger companies, 
you were concerned about profitability and you were concerned right. about revenue and being self-sustaining. And so right. in this role, you're convincing other people to fund what you're trying to do. And so in order to do that, you have to explain to them that it's not as risky as they think and that it has more opportunity than they think. The past two years, if you take the combination of COVID and the capital markets, it's uh, about as difficult as it's ever been and still is. Yeah. You know, we're in the middle of a funding round right now. And there are a lot of people that haven't seen it this difficult for quite a while. But yet the money has to go somewhere. If not us, then where? And for us, it's convincing people that we're able to hit milestones, that we're de-risking the business and that there's an opportunity here that that warrants their investment and finding terms that are agreeable. And sometimes yeah. you have to swallow down a little bit hard these days, yeah. but we need it just the same. It seems like managing stakeholder and investor expectations is sort of a constant concern or worry that you might have. Can you talk about your strategies on how you approach that? I know as others listen to this podcast, they could probably benefit from your lessons as well. I think it's basic human nature. If you're going to invest in something, you want to know what the risk is and you want to know what the upside is. And so what we try to do is help them understand all those risk factors and milestones that de-risk the company along the way. In our case at Titan, once we have a design freeze, it decreases the risk. Once you have manufacturability and you've manufactured systems, you decrease the risk. Once you have regulatory approval through successful clinical trial, de-risk, and once you have commercial adoption, utilization, and next generation technology, again, you continue to de-risk and the slide ruler goes the other way to opportunity. So a lot of investors look at companies and they look at the regulatory process as the toll gate. And I think the difference between being straight up with your investors and just talking the line about getting FDA approval is crucial because what they need to understand is once FDA says it's safe, once FDA says you can sell it, doesn't mean anybody's going to want to buy it. Right. And once anybody buys it, doesn't mean they're going to want to use it. Yeah. And once they use it, doesn't mean they're going to like it. And so right. in parallel, as you're trying to figure out the clinical regulatory pathway with your investors, you have to talk to them about why this will penetrate and succeed commercially, because that's ultimately the goal. What I like about MedTech right now, and it might make it a lot more difficult, but what I like about MedTech and even robotics specifically is that everything has become very real. It's no longer a flashy toy for a physician to buy. It's no longer a billboard that says we have robotics. It is what demonstrable value do you provide clinically financially, logistically, ergonomically, whatever it might be, you actually have to prove it. You actually have to have value that ticks the boxes on either pain points or opportunities that they have. And that's good for the healthcare system and good for patients. You talked about de-risking, such an important concept when you're managing expectations. And one of the things we've worked on at AdvoMed for a number of years, and, and hopefully this last round of Medufa will make it even better, is trying to de-risk the regulatory environment so it's a bit more predictable for you as a company and that investors have a little bit more confidence in the regulatory milestones as well. Do you feel like that is better than it was, say, five or 10 years ago? Is there more, more room to grow there? 
Well, absolutely. I mean, there's always Medufa 6, right? And I have plenty to say about Avamed and the value that we've seen there. But in this particular area, if you can imagine you only have one shot, yeah. or you can imagine you only have six months, or you can imagine you only have $5 million, that's the environment that companies like ours are in, where we can't afford delay. We can't afford to misstep or to even pivot. We have to know where the target is. We have to know what they expect and we have to know how long it will take because we can't absorb a mistake. So the reliability of knowing, and it shouldn't be a mystery, right? It should be tough. So it should be difficult to get through FDA, for example, but it shouldn't be a mystery. And so what I love is all the plain spoken communication, you know, pre-sub, Q-sub, escalation opportunities that we have so that we can get through without delay. And I think the Medufa 5 has allowed them not only to state a lot of those things, but has a way of holding them accountable. And I think the progress that's been made through FDA in partnership with Avamed over the last, particularly over the last six, eight, 10 years has been outstanding. And I think that there's always room for improvement. I also think I would love to see something similar with CMS, for example. I think that kind of clarity around reimbursement is needed with them as well. Yeah. How much, I know it's it's probably hard to measure this question, Carrie, but back to the concept of de-risking, if you had a much more predictable process at CMS, for example, that had clear timelines and process improvements that allowed you to get to coverage and payment of a product, how much further would it de-risk an investment in a company like yours or others for that matter? Ultimately, again, it's not that complicated. If you're an investor or your company like ours and you say you want to know how long and if you can get FDA approval, you want to know once you get there how successful you'll be commercially. That's really it. And so piece of that is, is there a market need? Does your product work? Is it reliable? Does it meet that need? And when I say need, I mean the stakeholders across the board, the CFO, the CEO, the physician, the staff, the director of the OR. Do you get changeover of the OR from a financial cost perspective? How much does the technology cost? How easy is it to use? What's the clinical benefit? How much increased patient traffic can you get? What's the halo effect in the hospital? All of those things financially and clinically get taken into account. And the CMS piece, if you know, if we spend a little more for a little better care, we're going to get extra reimbursement or we're going to get a set reimbursement that we know we can count on. And so that reliability and that data, investors and companies will always take a swing on what makes sense, but ultimately they want to see data. They want reliability and and to to your point of de-risking it, it becomes something you can count on. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be the one who criticizes so you don't have to carry, but it feels like with payers in general, public payers, and to some degree with private payers, that the focus, the budget-centric focus of what they do at CMS seems to always trump the patient-centric focus of what they do. And it feels to me like more balance there on the patient side would really improve the medtech ecosystem more broadly. Do you agree with that in general terms? I do think that if we're going to take a holistic approach to patient care, if we're going to be preventative, if we're going to understand what does better care get for patients. So and instead of looking in swim lanes, so if we say right. this, this procedure costs X and the reimbursable amount is this, 
There's also an element, for example, if you use robotic surgery or single single access robotic surgery in our case, where you have fewer incisions, fewer opportunity for complications, fewer opportunity for pain. If you're taking less opioids, if you have less of a chance to return to the ER, all of the pieces around it that cost money to the healthcare system should be taken into account as you go. Yeah. And I think that there needs to be a way of consolidating all of that in the decision process that CMS uses, because ultimately they have a job to keep costs down. But I think we're talking about overall costs, a lifetime of costs for a particular patient, right? And so what is med tech or what is care and certain procedures done a certain way do for that continuum for 80 years of a person's life if they get care done at a certain time in a certain way. And so I know that's kind of a big way of looking at it, but I think we're capable of making those kinds of decisions. Let's keep it contained. Yeah. You mentioned components of the healthcare system. One of the other challenges a lot of our companies have had during the last few years, particularly around COVID, was the supply chain issues over the course of that period of time. As economies began to shut down, global economies began to close down, the ability to get component parts in all aspects of the supply chain was very challenging, I should say. Did you experience the same thing, Carrie? And has it gotten better for you in the last six months or so? It's a trend better. Yeah, I mean, again, for us, in some ways, we don't have thousands of products we're trying to get out. But we picked the time to transfer from design to manufacturing at the exact wrong time. We're contract manufacturing on our robotic systems, and they have thousands of parts, which include semiconductor chips and and circuit boards and so on. And so what we've had to do is be very creative. We've had to find ways to work with our partners to find the parts to incorporate in those systems. We also have to think about because of the long regulatory pathway, when we go to market in 2025 and we're selling these systems in 25 and 26, do we have parts that are going to become obsolete by the time we actually go to market? And so there are a lot of complexities to it, even though we have a low volume of product that we're manufacturing and really, you know, multiple ways. One, we worked with partners. Two, we worked creatively to figure out how we can acquire those components or how we might be able to use a different kind of component. We also have worked with organizations like Avamed, who I know is lobbying on behalf of the medtech industry to say, listen, I know the circuit boards and chips are needed everywhere, including in the automotive industry and others, but this is a matter of life and death as it relates to us being able to get this supply. And so we've tried to do all of that as a small company. We don't feel like we're on our own and that's the most important part. Yeah, let's stay with COVID for just a little bit longer because everybody went through a challenging time. And I think every CEO I've talked to has learned a lot about how to manage an unpredictable crisis. Are there lessons you've learned, Carrie, over the past two years that have changed the way you think about leadership going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of books will be written. For me, COVID was kind of like an earthquake before the tsunami because something big happened and then everything just came to a stop. And yet that was somewhat of an illusion because all of a sudden everything got amplified and accelerated during those two years. It might have seemed like everyone was just at home, but there were a lot of things happening emotionally and work-wise that were really difficult, I think, to manage. And it found a lot of leaders re-examining how they lead. I think it found a lot of leaders not knowing what to do. And I think that everything we knew 
or thought we knew was tested. And, you know, I've always tried to deal with my employees and the people around me as individuals, but when everyone's going through the same thing, but in different ways, it was a really unique challenge to connect, to empathize, but also to move a business along. And so I think what we got back to is to a level of connectivity, but also accountability, meaning that if you're working from home or you're going through this situation or you have children, there's room for adaptability to personal circumstances and personal needs and empathy in that way. But it also comes down to productivity and accountability, because I think showing up at the office and putting in your eight or nine hours is no longer the standard. I think it gets leadership back to what do I expect and want of you and need of you? And then I need to get that. And the way in which you do it or where you're sitting when you do it is less important. And so I think for me, we got back to the roots of caring about people as people, but also caring about productivity in and of itself and not just showing up. Yeah. That's great. Let's let's stay with this leadership theme for for a little bit because I know a lot of people who listen to this learn a lot from CEOs like you. For those that are, are aspiring to be in a role like yours, Carrie, what general advice would you give them on their journey to the top of an organization? I would tell them to find ways or create ways that they can prepare. Because if you look at the example of, of football or NFL football even not all assistant coaches make good head coaches. They're, they're a completely different job. So if you're a manager and then a director and then a vice president and you want to be a C-level job or a CEO, understand that it's a completely n- a different job, not just an extension of the current job you have. Now, you can learn by watching, but you have to look for ways to test and refine yourself because if I was going to pick one attribute to have, it would be to be resilient. You have to find ways to refine yourself through the the fires of other opportunities to find a way to be both confident and humble, to build a great team, but be comfortable being very lonely. It's a very lonely job and be able to also process and prioritize and put first things first in your mission in the company. Because I think there are times where you have a 360 around you of investors and and a board and your family and customers and employees and many others, and none of them ever seem to be completely happy. You have to find your level of resilience to that, and you have to find your true north to make sure that you're, you're doing all the right things. And that you're listening. We could go down a list of 100 things you should try and remember to do as a CEO, but you can't step into it without being prepared for it. And no matter what you do, it'll kick your butt some days. But I think that that's what I would I would keep in mind if I was somebody thinking about doing it. Yeah, that's good. I struck by what you said, because I've heard others say it as well. The loneliness of the job, right? When you're in that CEO role. How do you deal with that, Carrie? I mean, to some degree, it comes across as if it makes you sad, but that's not the issue, right? It's just that there's there's no peers when you're in that position, right? Yeah, Scott, that's part of why I love going to the MedTech conference, because we all, you could say we all commiserate, but really you feel like other people are going through the same thing. And again, it's not a sympathy ploy. I think right. it's just who you're going to complain to, what's the point in complaining? I think you have confidants. Some of it you share and then some of it you just process. 
and you have to be comfortable with it. There's a difference between being alone and, and, and having it be a lonely job. And, you know, right. some things just need to be done by one person. Yeah. And if you're not comfortable with that, though, then there are other jobs. It's difficult to escape all of these things kind of falling to you. And if you're comfortable with it and you feel like you can impact it, then it's not a sad thing. It's it's really yeah. just reality. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean, and I've heard a number of people say that. You're right. It's not a sympathy play, right? It's just a recognition of of the position you're in. And it's important, I agree, for people moving into those roles to understand that in the right way. So I think that's great advice. Speaking of advice, over the course of your career, is there a memory that you have of the best advice you've ever been given as you've kind of climbed your way into this role, Gary? Something that sticks with you? You know, my dad told me once that... What's most important is that you make a difference. He kind of gave me this analogy of a gardener and the guy that cuts your lawn. The guy that cuts your lawn cuts it, comes back, cuts it again, and you don't really see much of an impact except it's a little shorter and then it grows back. But the gardener plants a lot of things. And the difference between those two is in the touching, meaning that everything you touch, people or projects in your community, in your family, in your office, that you make a difference and that people are left better off or a company is left better off for you having been involved or, or leading it or serving it in some way. Yeah, that's great advice. Is there a worst advice that anyone's ever given you? Yeah, I mean, when you get the worst advice, you always have to consider the source. And I had a major investor that told me once that everyone's replaceable. Yeah. And in some ways, as you know, that's somewhat true. You should never think that you can't be replaced and you should have that humility. But in the context that he meant it, he, he meant in the way that we deal with our employees. And there were some things that he wanted me to do that dismissed the unique talents and value of the people that were involved and the way that you're supposed to look at them as a commodity and as a resource in right. that way. And so I rejected that advice because I did consider the source, right. uh, but it was the worst advice <laughs> anyone's ever given me, at least in business. Yeah, that's good. So let, let's shift back to robotics and Titan and the work that you're doing. If, if you look out over the horizon a little bit, Carrie, what's the future of robotics look like in, say, 10 or 15 years? Well, I think everything is going to become more automated. Everything is going to become smaller. It's not unlike any other part of our society. If you look at automotive industry, if you look at other types of technology. The great part about this is it's not tech, it's med tech. And so it's crucial that everything that is done makes a difference with a patient. And so right now with robotic surgery, you have a physician that can sit comfortably to the side. It's not just for his or her comfort so that they can feel better at the end of the day. It's so that during a complex procedure, they're able to sit comfortably and do some things ergonomically that help them take their time and to do things that are better for the patient. Additionally, we're going to move from the industrial age of robotics to the information age of robotics, where most of the improvements come in the form of software, come in the form of AI, come in the form of no-fly zones, don't cut here, don't go there. You can have a physician in Raleigh-Durham who is doing a procedure for the fifth time, who's doing it in a way that a physician in Cleveland has done it 500 times. And so every step along the way, every bit of advice can 
come across their screen or into their ears as they're performing the surgery. Things will become more automated. There are parts, even though everyone's anatomy is different, a little bit different, there are parts of the procedure that can easily be done automatically. And so it may go from 10% of the procedure to 40 to 50% to at some point, you said 20, 30 years, at some point, maybe that's 100 years from now, you press a button and the, the robot does it. But we're far from that. Yeah. How challenging it is, is it to convince surgeons that the new technologies are better than what they're used to? Has that been something that's been particularly challenging for you or as, as the surgical community moved to accept this wholeheartedly now? Sometimes it depends on the surgeon. You find that you have to speak in specifics. And so if it takes less time, if it's less invasive, that all makes sense to them. If they're yeah. able to do things they weren't able to do, that makes sense to them. You even have physicians where their procedures are changing as a result of the technology you give them. Yeah. So what we did at the beginning is we gave them technology that would help them perform what they're currently doing in a different way. But that's moving to you give them technology and they figure out how to use it in a different way for their benefit and that of the patient. As an example, we have a physician that has a single port robot that when he removes the prostate, he will go through the bladder and remove the prostate rather than crossing over all different types of tissues and structures. And so he developed that protocol based on a technology that is unique. And I think that will continue. I think older physicians will be able to operate well into their 70s. I think newer physicians that are used to the dynamics of video games and, and operating in this kind of environment will take to it very easily. And then everybody in between, it's a matter of them uh, you know, there's the early adopters and the, the, the followers and, and those that need to see the data. But when you address the market, you need to be able to address all of them in somewhat different ways. Yeah. And then the future for Titan, what's that look like in the short term, Kerry? Well, we're getting in uh, half a dozen robots in the next two, three months. And then we'll be using those for clinical studies next year and early part of 24. And then we'll file for a de novo application with the FDA, and then we'll start selling in 25. Mm. So that sounds basic and simple, but it's a lot of work, and, and we're looking forward to it. And I also think that as you execute in that, we have to understand that to compete in 27 and 28 and 29, yeah. we need to innovate in parallel on next-gen technology. Yeah. It's an exciting time to be in this space. And uh, for you at Titan, it sounds like you're on the verge of some really exciting times as well. So congratulations on all you've done. Let me end with a, a few lightning round questions, if you don't mind, just to give folks a better sense of what motivates you. Do you have a favorite book or a most interesting book you've read recently that others might benefit from? I read a book recently called Who Not How. And the premise of the book is that all of these issues that you have as a leader or as an entrepreneur that you don't know how to fix, that instead of spending hours and hours and days and, and putting it off a long period of time trying to figure out what to do or how to do it, you need to find people. It's about the people that can help you solve those problems, the people that can do those things in a better way. So that was a really interesting book that I read recently. Yeah. We work in Washington, Carrie. So this next question is not a political question, but I, I kind of have, have to ask it given where we are. But do you have a favorite U.S. president that you have admired or looked up to that and, and maybe have learned from as well as a leader? 
they probably all have political tones to them, but I would pick George Washington. And, and the reason for that is if you read anything about him, and I don't think enough people know enough about him, uh, about what he did in the British Army and then obviously what he did as a general in the Revolutionary War, but taking over as president of a country for the first time, resisting the temptation to take more power than he should. Most people don't know that we almost lost the Revolutionary War. I mean, many, many times. We almost lost the War of 1812. And the time where the Constitution was put in place and where he was president was crucial, not only in the formation of the government and all new things. I mean, I think ultimately, I respect him for not taking more power than he needed to as a king of America, but I also respect him going into a process and going into a government that nobody had done before. There was no blueprint for, well, there was a blueprint, you know, the constitution, but it's not like stepping into something that somebody had done before. And so I have a tremendous amount of respect for the courage that that took, the humility, the, the talent as a leader that he had. Yeah, that's great. Would he also be the one person in history, dead or alive, that you'd like to have dinner with? Or is there someone else that fits that bill? Well, I think he'd be interesting. I mean, when I think about dinner, I think about the hundreds of dinners I've missed with my wife. I probably would, would love to have dinner with her or or I'd love to have dinner with maybe my 1980s self so I could get some really good advice. But I would have dinner with Jesus because yeah. I think that regardless of if you're religious or which religion you're part of, Jesus existed as a person. And whatever you believe, I think it would be a great discussion over dinner. You and Mick Farrell should get together then, Kerry, because I believe in my podcast with Mick, I think he gave us the same answer as you. And it was an interesting conversation on his perspective there too. So, and then finally, lightning round, what are the most important successes or failures that have kind of turned you into the person you are today? That's a big question. I mean, nobody puts failures on their LinkedIn profile, but right. I think if you looked at my my record over the years, you might confuse some of the successes and failures. I think some of the difficulties that I've had with companies have been my most successful endeavors as a leader. Some of them that were difficult or that didn't even work out the way I would have liked were the most difficult, where I worked the hardest, where I was the most creative, where I did things that I didn't think I could do under the kinds of stresses I don't think I could take. So I learned what I could take, I learned what I could do, and I learned that I would do those things again, even though you don't get credit like you do when you have a success. I would also say that successful exits of companies and successful years, yes, they were successful, but I look at them in reality and I try not to get too attached to them. What I look at is what did I do to make that a success because I think if you get fooled into thinking it was all you and that there wasn't luck involved or that you didn't have a lot of other people involved, uh, I think you're making a mistake. And I also think that there are times during my successful runs or years at different companies where you know, I probably didn't pay enough attention to home and family where I wasn't around enough. And so when I look back at that company or at that time, it's a mixed bag because I feel like there were successes in business, but not failures at home, but I think less than successful years during crucial times. And and I would go back and change some of that if I could. Yeah. yeah. Well, that that's great. Last question real quick. I see on the bookshelf behind you a Green Bay Packers helmet. Yeah. Um, so you must be a must be a diehard Packer fan. Quite a game they had this past weekend. 
They did. Matter of fact, I, I, just above that helmet, you, you see a uh, stock certificate. So I am an owner. So, okay. you know, me and Jerry Jones, we're owners of NFL teams. So it's, it's one share. I have one share. And so, yeah, I'm a diehard fan and, and we're going through a bit of a tough year, but that's all right. We're learning some things and hopefully all we have to do is get in at the end. That's, yeah, that's right. That's right. As long as you make the playoffs, you got a shot, right? So, well, the last time they won the Super Bowl, they got in as a wild card and they went on the road and they they won it. So, yeah, yeah. I've always enjoyed watching the Packers just because of their grand history and loved them when Favre was there. You know, he's just such a wild man, but amazingly talented at the same time. They were they were a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, they were and are. We were very fortunate. We have 30 years of back-to-back Hall of Fame quarterbacks, and it's unheard of. And yeah, so we're, we're spoiled. We're spoiled. It's amazing. All right, Kerry. Well, thanks for joining us today. This has been great. We appreciate you taking time to be with us. All right, Scott. Good to be All with right. you. All right. Take care. For those of you listening, thanks for tuning in. For more episodes, visit advamed.org slash podcast or subscribe to MedTech POV on your favorite streaming platform. Until next time, this is Scott Whitaker. Have a great day.